Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way toward the better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Yeah, and here we are. This is our last recording of the year. I know it'll it'll be published. Uh, uh, it'll air after the beginning of the year. But I'm in the I'm in that like reflective plan for next year mode. So um, yeah, me too, for sure. That's yeah. it's end of the year and beginning of the year thinking at this time frame, which I'm really actually kind of enjoying a little bit. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking actually, I should say, um, so I've mentioned my executive coach before on the show. Um, in fact, I know this because one of our listeners, um, got in touch with me and like, I think now uses the same coach, which is super cool. Uh, but in any case, Laura Peck is my coach and she, um, has a website. She, she's got a newsletter. She put on her website or on her newsletter this week, like a set of questions that you can ask yourself at the end of the year and going into the next year. I love that sort of priorities and things. So I've been going through that. So if anyone needs or wants one of those, like a tool to kind of help you, it's just a, it's just simple, short set of questions uh, that we can ask ourselves. I I would highly recommend going to her website and checking that out. Um, it's been a really what's her name nice. again, Lindsay? I want that. That sounds yeah. fantastic. <laughs> it's um Laura spelled, you know, like the traditional Laura way, Peck, P-E-C-K consulting. Great. And yeah, she's got it on her website. It's really simple. I mean, you know, I'm sure that there are many people who have yep. these kinds of questions worked out, but you know, it's it's nothing to with with too much pressure. I think one of the ways that I like that she asked the question is um she asked, who do I want to be building relationships with? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's sort of this question about what do I want to continue? What do I want to stop? What do I want to start? Yep. Um, and th- that I think has been helpful for me because, you know, like I think about it from the perspective of I have some relationships that I started this past year that I really want to maintain. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch that I feel like I really want to start. But it, you know, and and I, I mean, not that many that I think I need to stop, although I need to kind of ramp down the amount of time that I spend on some, you know, yeah, so it's kind of like a nice way of, of framing these questions so that you could maybe do something about them in your, in your work day, you know, yep. like a certain degree of that is just about like, okay, I know that I have this broader idea of like how I want to be spending my time differently. But how do you, how do you like operationalize that for yourself? Totally. Like, Point. Lindsay, that I am that is exactly where my head is right now because mm-hmm. I'm in that mode of it's not so much I guess it is kind of resolutions, personal and professional for the year ahead. You know, how do I want to be more intentional about, well, you know, everything, <laughs> but including the minutes of my day. I, you know, I want my time to be spent in a meaningful way, personally and professionally. And I'm always looking for ways to just be more take more care with that, um, but also to leave more room for those relationships um, that I think, you know, that I really, because if you don't, if you don't do it with some intention, it doesn't happen automatically. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I'm working on this hypothesis for myself this year, just that I'm going to pick five sort of 
thought partner people other than you, Kira, who I already feel like <laughs> I think we got this down. Of five people that I want to have like a recurring one-on-one with that I think of as sort of, you know, yeah, like intellectual friends almost um, to help me think through things and to sort of strategize about the movement together. But it's it that me that's oper- that's something I can operationalize to basically yep. say okay, I'm going to just set up this recurring one-on-one with this person. Um, obviously, they have to buy into this idea too. Yeah. But I, I think it might be a nice way for me to sort of make sure that I make time for those types of relationships. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I, but I am, I'm really optimistic that like, this is a good time of year, but in general, we are always able to do something with our time that is new, that feels fulfilling. If we can just figure out how to kind of like make an easy step in that direction. Yep. It's like, it's not the same as like, you know, oh, I'm just going to get a gym membership and then suddenly I'll be super fit. But it is like, okay, (laughs) how do I just take a step towards this thing and try to do something structurally to change so that I can spend more time where I want to spend it? Yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. Um, And I've been, it's funny, I've been thinking about that. I got invited to speak at two different venues in January. And as I was developing the ideas, I was like, this is a perfect excuse for me to reach out to, as you call them, thought partner people to talk about ideas. You know, like it's, it's great when you have sort of a reason for it and a focus to it. And I just started this morning sending out emails to some people asking questions about little trying to plant some seeds for some things to develop in the new year, but very cool. Yay. All right. Well, good luck with it. And so here's some more relationships in the new year. That that is a it's a it's a good it's a good priority and important, right? To just like keep up um I don't know, to just stay in touch with people. Um yeah. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, yes, and speaking of fantastic people to stay in touch with, I am super excited about our guest today, Lindsay. So I do want to get move over to that. We are really, really excited to have Sandy Mendler with us today. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks. Happy to be here. We are really pleased that you are able to make time for this. Um, I'm going to give an introduction to those of our listeners who are not familiar with Sandy. Um, Sandy is an architect, a planner, and a researcher um, focused on creating inspiring new models for healthy, sustainable living. She is a design industry thought leader and dynamic project leader. And her projects focus on impact around key goals of engagement, experiential learning, ecosystem restoration, and community health. At Gensler, Sandy is a principal, a studio director, and a regional practice leader for education. And she chose to focus on education because it's a leverage point for opportunity and social mobility. She loves to ask really big systemic questions about sustainable systems, inclusivity, and how to build wealth in underinvested areas, digging deep to develop meaningful solutions that demonstrate the added value of sustainable, equitable design. She sees these as prototypes for the positive future. Sandy is a lead fellow, has served two terms on the USGBC National Board of Directors. She was chair of the AIA National Committee on the Environment and a Pathways to Equity fellow. She is engaged with SCUP, Eco Districts, the Design Futures Council, and other industry groups. And she was a lead author on one of Wiley's best-selling sustainable design texts. And she lectures widely about those topics. Um, and on a personal note, um, Sandy Sandy's voice um, was part of Women in Green, Voices of Sustainable Design, 
the book I wrote with Lance Hosey uh, several years ago. She is featured in the conversation around the question of what is sustainable design that also involved Susan Maxman and the late Kirsten Childs. Uh, Sandy, we're so thrilled that you're here, and I'd love uh, for you to get us started by telling us about how and why you got involved in architecture and sustainability. Tell us about your path. Great. Thanks. Thanks for that intro. And uh, and I loved your chat as we were getting started, thinking about how we might think intentionally in the new year of who we engage in conversation. I just thought that was the greatest thing. And I think it, it resonates with me in terms of my path because I've grown and evolved so much in conversation with others and, you know, really learning and, and evolving through the work. So for me, I was really inspired to become an architect because I felt like it was a creative field that also has a social purpose. And to me, you know, it's kind of that's been part of my driving desire from the beginning. But then the question is, like, which social purpose? There's so many out there. Like, how how to focus um, my interests was something I was really kind of searching for throughout my time in architecture school, kind of exploring what others have done and, and trying to understand how to focus my efforts. And frankly, it was Earth Day 1990. In New York City, there was this incredible parade and there were booths everywhere and, you know, really, really launching this idea about uh, promoting uh, a portion of it was on promoting sustainability in the built environment. And I mean, it's funny, but I was like, oh, my gosh, there's a name for this. This is what I've been trying to sort of understand and get clarity on. Like I've been trying to piece this together, but actually there's a name for this and there's a movement going and uh, it was incredibly exciting for me. So I, I felt like I had found a tribe of people and, you know, it was all emerging. So kind of back in 1990, it was early days. And um, the uh, AIA Committee on the Environment uh, had only started like in the early 1990s, you know, before the USGBC had even been created. So it was a time of trying to define what it might be to create a sustainable building. Um, around that time, I moved to Washington, D.C., and the only firm that was hiring at that time was HOK. It wasn't necessarily on my radar, but it was uh, turned out to be such a great place for me. And I was agitating about sustainability and excited to find a way to kind of bring that into the work. And we won the headquarters project for the EPA in Research Triangle Park. So I had been agitating and saying, this is what I wanted to do. And they're like, okay, Sandy, here, why, don't you, uh, why don't you focus on this? So it was, um, I feel like it was kind of like my graduate studies in a way, because I spent, I spent four years on that project because it started and stopped a few times because each phase of work had to get authorized by Congress. It was, it was a large project when during those downtimes Rather than put me on a different project, the uh, HOK actually allowed me to just do research. And so, you know, it's going down to the Department of Energy and looking through physical files to try to understand uh, energy use in buildings. And anyway, it was an interesting time. One kind of important moment talking about conversation partners was when um, uh, James White, who led the indoor air branch at EPA and was somebody I was working with and trying to figure out, you know, how do we address this in the building? I asked him at one point in time, I said, well, 
how are we doing? Like, like, what do you, what do you think? How are we doing? Is it, you know, you're the EPA, this is so intimidating. Tell me, is it, how's it going? And he said, well, you know, we're experts here and, and you can, you can invite us into this process. Like we would love to, like, let's work together. And I don't know, for me, I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me before that I could just recruit them to be part of this design effort. Uh, but they were very interested and willing. And of course they were, this is their work. Together, um, we were able, you know, with their input to create the indoor air quality guidelines that actually ended up making their way into lead um, in the early versions. So, so anyway, it was just an interesting experience for me to, as uh, working with a client to, to realize it's sort of like this realization that there are resources, more resources than we think to help us uh, do this work. And, you know, through that project, trying to figure out what a green material is and how to do energy modeling and optimize the design, a lot of lessons were learned. We did a lot of networking through the HOK network. At the same time, Chris Hammer and Marianne Lazarus and Bill O'Dell and the St. Louis office of HOK had been organizing around creating a, a green team for the firm and and we were exchanging ideas back and forth and, and, you know, decided we should start writing down what we were learning. So literally just to organize our thoughts, like how do we build each project, you know, to be greener than the next one or to be more sustainable? Like, what does it really mean? We created uh, a checklist, a series of checklists. And you told me, you were remembering this the other day, Kira, uh, when we were talking that like literally we created our checklist because we're trying to figure out, you know, what it means to create a, a green building. And we were sharing them. People were like, I hear you have a great checklist. Why don't um, we'd love a copy of it? So through word of mouth, we ended up, you know, evolving and formalizing the checklist into a guidebook. That guidebook was something we shared. As we shared the guidebook, we started getting invited to create guidebooks for federal agencies and for cities. And, you know, so it, we, through that process, I was able to build a research team of folks that were helping us strengthen and evolve our understanding of what it is to do a green building. And then ultimately, after having this kind of simplified but really useful uh, document that we created for internal use that others were using, I remember chatting with this woman. I met her at, a, at an opening at a gathering and uh, from Wiley, the publisher, I described to her what we were doing and the fact that we had already distributed like 500 copies of this guidebook. It seemed like people wanted this information and would they be interested in publishing it as a textbook? And they were like, yeah, I think so. And they got some, they got some reviews. And anyway, it uh, got picked up for publication. And I think the reviewers that, that looked at what we had created said, yes, this is a worthwhile thing, but it should be done as soon as possible. Timing is, is important. So anyway, it was exciting to then have the opportunity to spend my summer um, working on turning this into a publication. It became the HOK Guidebook to Sustainable Design. Bill and Marianne and I worked on this together. We had a team of folks, also some researchers that helped with diagrams and, and some of the, the diagrams describing some of the concepts. One of those is Mara Baum, interesting person in our community. Anyway, it was a fun process. It became a pretty useful book and it created a whole series of, of opportunities around that. So 
Should I just continue fast forward into the present? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like there's so many stories, Sandy. Yeah. But, I, but no, I, I think I, that one is such a highlight that I'm glad that you yeah. that you sat on it a little bit. I have like, a, I, I, I hope that our listeners understand like this is such a, that was such a pivotal moment um, for our movement, the HOK guidebook. And so it's, it's, uh, it's important, but yes, we also want to know yeah. going forward, like to, to where you've been since then yeah. and how you've stayed engaged in the community. So tell us, um, tell us, yeah. What about yeah. your journey from, from then to now? Yeah. So anyway, just that time of building an internal network then led to an opportunity to build my external network started the Washington, D.C. Cope. There wasn't one in Washington, D.C. at the time. And it was really exciting to realize that if you sent out a letter to people and asked them if they'd like to be part of something, a lot of people say yes. And we started that D.C. Cote. I was uh, invited in the very early days to the USGBC lead committee. There were like five of us <laughs> writing the first draft of lead. And then ultimately then was invited by Gail Lindsay to be part of the National Cope, which was great. Um, such a great network of folks. So that was happening on the, you know, all that volunteer time that that contributes so much to building knowledge and building a sense of community was really terrific. Um, around that time, I moved to California and just really leaned into creating that next generation of projects um, to really push the envelope on passive design with the NOAA headquarters, creating a, a building that um, is, a large headquarters building that all except the lab spaces are ventilated without any fans through dandruff ventilation. It was really cool to, to travel to Australia and learn about these passive systems and bring them back and try those in the new facility. It also around that time, a little after that, transitioning to Methuen, really inspired by the work of Burt Gregory to say, you know, let's not just look at buildings, let's look at urban districts and larger set of systems and a broader set of thinking about how communities evolve. The Resilient by Design Challenge was a very impactful time for me in my career where um, we were leading one of the teams. There were 10 teams that were invited to be, that competed and were selected to be part of that year-long process to look at how to pilot new solutions for resilience in the Bay Area, working with communities. Deb Gunther was leading our team from Methuen. She's a real visionary landscape architect. And um, so anyway, just beginning to ask these big questions about, it's not just a building, like how does the building connect to a larger ecosystem and a larger urban system and looking at much more broadly at the context for our work which ultimately led me to go back for a, a doctoral degree in planning policy and development at uh, USC. I completed that back in 2015. And ultimately, you know, my advisor, who's so great, um, Dan Mesmanian, he said, you know, think about, it's so interesting, you see, saying, you know, really the, the key is to figure out where we can have the most impact. You know, there's so much to do. It's, it can feel so daunting, but where are those leverage points and where can we have the most impact? And I was thinking, you know, that maybe I was going to go in more of a policy direction, but ultimately uh, for me, I just love the work and the fact that our projects are so impactful and that they can really 
influence not only the people that experience them, but other professionals that learn from them. And so uh, with that, I decided that I could focus on policy and research and design by coming to Gensler and uh, joining a firm where research is so much part of the practice and where uh, there's a big network of colleagues to collaborate with. And so, so yeah, so it's exciting. I feel like I've landed in a place where I can lead projects, I can set direction in terms of the, the body of work we're doing, and also keep doing the research because I think there's so much, um, we don't, there's a lot of innovating that still needs to happen to create the fully sustainable future. Mm, thank you for that. Um, and yeah, and I, I, so many different chapters of your life that we're going to dive into a little bit more. So I'm excited um, for that. Uh, I mean, yeah, the going, we could spend the whole hour just talking about going back to get a PhD um, and the planning scale and all of that. But um, uh, before we do dive in a bit more, I'm wondering if you can share what you feel like you've learned in this journey about what people should know about entering your profession and what they should be good at and interested in. And, and I think for you, I kind of feel like that's your profession is defined in part by being a sustainability leader within architecture, but you can answer it however you want to um, like what, wherever it is that your, your brain is focused on these days. Like how do people, how can people follow in the kind of work that you do? What should they focus on? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think um, there's so many people that might have been really good architects who were afraid that they had to be great at math in order to be a great in order to be an architect. And I think I think the the thing that people maybe need most when they're thinking about this profession is to understand how much we work as teams and that um because we are like systems thinkers and holistic thinkers, the architects are kind of weaving together all of the pieces and parts of technology and um, human experience and community desire. You know, these are, these are all like, we have to listen to others and understand what's needed. You know, it's not so much this solo performance and, and individual creation as much as I think the best work genuinely comes from teams that are really working well together. And, you know, I love that. I feel like it's this wonderful, like humbling experience when we realize that like we can't do our work well without taking time to understand, you know, other people's perspectives and um, what's happening on the ground and, and what all of the, anyway, so there's so much to know and uh, I think it's really exciting. So that's why I think it's like a, a field where we're continuously learning and we're continuously exploring and we're trying to figure out how to organize people and ideas. So to me, I think that's, that's the fun of it is that we're always exploring and entering the worlds of our clients and of both communities we work in and and learning from their their insights and their experience you know I love that and I love the fact that um that even though there's so many technical questions to ask 
we have the opportunity to try to comprehend all of it, but we also just have the opportunity to pull in people and um, invite them into the conversation. And uh, what I love about this purposeful work focused on sustainability is people really want to be a part of it. You know, it's, it's something that people are eager to participate in. So, mm -hmm. you know, we get to bring a really great set of people together that are, <laughs> are working in this, this positive field. Yeah, isn't it? It's fun just hearing you talk about it. It makes me feel yeah. like, oh, what a wonderful job this is. Like, it, I mean, it's your career it arc, but also just sort of the day to day. It really feel like I can. I it, yeah, like it makes me like in a nice way, like envious of all of the fun that it is to bring people together who when when people are excited to get engaged in the sustainability work. I feel like I get to see like little pieces of that happening, but it's not really that it, it's not my job, you know, that's like it must be a really nice part of it to 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 get to sort of found the engagement of your work with your clients on such important issues that people really care about it's uh, yeah anyway that's that's lovely okay so so speaking of the things that make your job most fun what of everything that you have done in your career so far what are you most proud of accomplishing um and it can be anything personal or professional and it can be more than one thing but tell us about the highlights so far okay you know i mentioned um I mentioned about resilient by design. Um, I think it was a very, very special opportunity. And I just maybe I'll talk about it a little bit so that uh, people that might want to look into it could do a little bit of, of research on that because it was um, the one I'm talking about is the resilient by design Bay Area Challenge and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. And there's quite a bit of information online about this. The first Resilient by Design uh, challenge happened after Hurricane Sandy in New York City, when there was this effort to redesign the city to recover from Hurricane Sandy and then to prepare for future events. But then the Rockefeller Foundation said, well, that's great to be disaster responsive, but what would we do if we wanted to design differently in advance of a disaster? You know, what if we wanted to just design better and be more resilient? What would that look like? So that was the challenge um, that they put forward. It's basically a design competition in two phases. And the first phase was a research phase where we were engaging community members and trying to understand what was happening on the ground in various communities all around the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, so teams were invited. Uh, there were teams from all over the world that uh, put forward their proposals. There were they were video submittals, which was fascinating. And those videos are available online. Um, of these teams, some from the U U.S. and some internationally, that said, um, you know, how would they go about approaching this challenge? Ten teams were selected, and um, as I mentioned, the one I was involved with was with when I was with Methune and we were called the home team because we were from, from here and also recognizing that resilience is, requires a focus on homes and our, you know, people's homes are such a core to their sense of personal resilience. So it was a really exciting process. One thing that was so interesting about it is that we were a cohort and we, the 10 teams, we each heard each other's presentations as we were evolving our work. And we each met with the various uh, regulators and, and representatives 
uh, together and then ultimately saw the, the outcome of our work together. So it was a great learning experience. And I just think, you know, that kind of thing for our community is so valuable because we do need to innovate and we always innovate through our work, but it happens, you know, step-by-step step incrementally. So this, this opportunity for innovation, I felt like was kind of a leap forward. And it was all grounded in this idea that we have to co-create with communities. We can't just think that we have the best ideas and tell people what they need to do. It needs to be co-creative with communities. You know, my role was really finding and engaging and enlisting participation from the team in North Richmond and, you know, so that we could have really a impactful, continuous conversation with them, not just check the engagement box, but really work together throughout the process to develop something together that met their needs. So, you know, that was such an exciting process and um, was very impactful to me. And I'm still, you know, kind of processing what we heard and learned and, and how that might um, impact the way we, we design in the Bay Area. That was a really highlight. I think also uh, Chatham University, Eden Hall campus was such a great project where we were invited to say, you know, what would it be like if we created a new university campus built from the ground up to be sustainable? All the systems, the interface with the land and the the, the buildings, the entire um, development would be designed from the ground up to be a sustainable living and learning environment. That was something that was, uh, it's, it's the first buildings are built now, it's a functioning campus, it's a place for uh, sustainability leaders to come and host events. It was really fun to have um, some eco-districts events out there. I think there's been some AIA learning events out there as well. And it's also a school of sustainability in the environment with lots of hands-on learning happening um, by the students who were there um, as part of their program. So that was super special. We did a lot of, um, we kind of brought our design studio to Chatham because it's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and we were out here on the West Coast. And so we did a lot of charretting and workshopping there on site. And so I do feel like I've had the, the opportunity to do really immersive work where we're trying to create new types of um, environments that, uh, you know, and, and innovate along the way. You know, I think it's, it's the projects are really, really exciting and uh, they don't all have to be like a whole new campus or a whole new community vision. It can be a project. You know, I think we're, you know, they can be smaller projects, I think. I do love the large ones because we have the opportunity to, to have more time and bring more people together. We're doing a really exciting project at UC Berkeley right now. The Gateway project is uh, we're working together with Weissman Freddie out of New York on that. They're the lead design architects and we're the executive architect. It's a great collaboration pushing the boundaries around collaborative research. And uh, I think, um, you know, the, the projects are meaningful partly because we get to see the physical product of our work. But the other reason they're really special to me is really it's the, the people that come together and the way we work together when we're really trying to create something useful in terms of pushing us towards uh, sustainability. Yeah. 
That's great, Sandy. I'm so glad you mentioned both of those examples because I think each one is really has a lot. There's so much in it that is, you know, serves as good models for other things that are happening. Um, and I really appreciate the efforts to sort of document that too and sort of capture it while it, both while it's happening, but also for the future. I, I would like to shift gears just a little bit and kind of go zoom out a little bit and talk a little bit more about the, the industry, the green building industry, which is often also thought of as a movement. And I'm just curious you know, whether you feel like you're part of an industry or part of a movement or or how you think about that for yourself. Yeah, I definitely feel like it's part of a movement. And and I, even if it, I think it's part of what, I mean, we're so fortunate. I mean, I think we have the ability to do our work and be professionals and be part of an industry, but we're also aligning with others. And so instead of feeling competitive with my colleagues, you know, I can feel like really aligned with them. So it's really, it allows us all to grow and evolve more quickly. And um, it just shifts the tone. You know, I think I feel happy and excited when I see colleagues in other firms do exceptional work. It's uh, it's because we're, we're rowing in the same direction. So I think it, it really shifts the tone of the way we think about the work when we realize that we're kind of all colleagues in this. It, it requires, uh, you know, there's plenty of work for us all to do. Um, I think there's, the, you know, there's tremendous amount of work for us all to do. And so it's not about creating that unique, best, precious thing. It's about us magnifying our impact and supporting each other and building on each other's successes. So to me, that's how I think of it. Mm, yeah, yeah, I love that. I agree. Um, and yeah, so, okay, so as a part of that collaborative work, can you tell us how you think we are doing? I, I am particularly curious about this idea of like whether you had visions of the year 2020, because you've been doing this long enough that that may have been an anchor for you. But more broadly, can you tell us sort of where do you think we as a community, as a movement, have made the most progress that you're most proud of? And where do you think we are um, we have not made enough progress or where do you think our, we should be setting our sights? Yeah. Oh, it's such a hard one. It really is. As, you know, I thought 2020 was going to be like, we were going to be, we were going to have this all figured out. And um, there were going to be so many good examples, so much we had learned. And we, you know, we started to see codes becoming stronger, you know, lots of great technology around lighting and all these great things that were happening in terms of successes um, and awareness and lead kind of building like a household level awareness of the fact that building performance is something that can be measured and can be improved on. I think to me, like, it's, you know, this has been a, a very difficult time, right? And we are realizing how much we're not meeting those goals, right? So I think, to me, the big realization is that I feel like this growing inequality, you know, we're all looking at, at diversity, equity, inclusion now, but, you know, why did it take so long to understand that, you know, that it's not enough to create precious environments that are uber green and that we need 
to look holistically at the environments that people are living in and growing childhood poverty, growing gap in terms of um, lifespan based on race. Um, you know, why, like we have really, really bad uh, metrics in terms of growing inequality and the impacts of that inequality in the U.S. And so out of that, you know, for me, I made a really big shift personally where I was, had been focused on um, the environmental movement, the sustainability movement. And now I feel like, you know, we can't address environmental sustainability without addressing equity. And um, we're all, uh, that's a commonly said thing, but it's, I think one of my challenges, one of the things I, I don't like hearing is that, you know, those who contribute the least to environmental harm are the ones paying the biggest cost. It's sort of true, but it's also true that um, because housing is so insecure and unequal, people are uh, lower income people are getting pushed to the margins of urban areas and commuting long, long distances and living in poorly built housing. So actually, people living at the margins are, are contributing quite a lot to the carbon emissions. And we can't just simply focus on, I mean, we do need to focus on uh, high emitters, but it's not as simple as um, uh, just trying to create sustainable strategies in our core cities, for instance. And so I think to me, that's the big shift, which is that um, we have to look at how development happens and how to, how to catalyze investment in underinvested areas without displacement. Mm. We just have to do that. Otherwise, um, we're not ever going to solve the larger sustainability challenges. Mm. So partly we need to do this because it's the right thing to do, but it's also necessary to address these underinvested areas because it's a part of the entire equation of uh, carbon emissions and um, degraded ecosystems. Mm. So I think that yeah, that's where I think the big gap is that we like our economic drivers focus investment into the areas where there's already investment. It's fascinating. I learned that, um, you know, every time we have a growing uh, urban area, we end up with growing vacancy in like the under-resourced areas. And there's tremendous amount of vacancy, actually. We talk about how there's not enough land for housing, but there's there's more land than we, there's the challenge of finding the proper way to develop and invest in ways that benefit communities and don't drive displacement. So I think that to me is just a core challenge. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating and inspiring to hear you kind of navigate these, um, these intricacies, Sandy. I really appreciate it. And I totally it's like I can tell how much you're thinking about these and how how important this is just in the way that you kind of navigate that nuance. Um, and and I and I to- totally agree with you. I, think, I mean, there's a lot that you're saying there that 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 um, is kind of trying to dispel some myths that we've told ourselves and to face the bigger problem. And I'm I'm also really really thinking a lot these days about 
the ways in which economic structures are impacting, um, you know, our, the, the goals that we set out for ourselves for the building industry and for the climate. And I think, yeah, you said it really well. So thank you for that. Um, and and uh, it is unfortunately getting to the end of our time with you. And so um, we're ho hopefully this will be a nice way to wrap things up, even though we could talk about that a lot more. But um, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners um, these days, um, who or what is inspiring you most? Um, it's typically a who, but if there are sort of um, things or um, ideas or sources of information or things that you want to mention, you know, who are you most inspired by these days? I guess is, is the is our last question for you today. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Well, you know, I think just to kind of wrap on the the earlier comments about the the drivers of development. Uh, for those that are interested, I would encourage a read of Richard Florida's The New Urban Crisis. Um, you may recognize his name from his very popular book called The Rise of the Creative Class, which really looked at issues of development in urban areas. But I think his newer book called The New Urban Crisis really lays out pretty clearly the drivers of like the concentration of wealth and the concentration of the and the drivers of disparity. Um, so not necessarily the the point of inspiration, but like the point of challenge, I think, for those that are interested. And then in terms of the point of inspiration, like I am totally an optimist and it is exciting to think about how we can, you know, find solutions to these challenges that are that are really inspiring. I mean, I think for me, I feel like when we are able to develop design solutions that show the kind of win-win and that show that um, solving the sustainability challenges isn't like a bitter pill, but this incredible opportunity um, that uh, that's what I really love. So maybe many of you have heard Jeannie Gang speak. Um, she was a Greenville keynote. She's been keynotes all over the place. She talks about actionable idealism. And uh, I think she's a, a tremendous leader in our profession right now who is addressing a lot of these challenges of sustainability and resilience and bringing kind of the poetic solutions forward at the same time. It's not an either or. It's not that we're going to have a uh, focus on beautiful design or we're going to focus on these, these challenges. I think ideally, and, and Bob Berkebile has been one of my inspirations over the years um, because he was one of those people early on that talked about how, you know, the beautiful embodiment of all these ideas is the most impactful one. And I, another thing I love about Bob is like my, one of my favorite sayings is that life is long. You know, so many people say life is short, life is short. I think life is long. You know, we have a lot of, we actually have a lot of time and a lot of different chapters we can go through in our careers. And I love that he's currently now turning himself into a, um, a developer of sorts looking at community development projects through the Foundation for Regeneration and um, really looking at uh, some of those solutions for bringing new life to contaminated landscapes and underinvested areas and communities that are feeling, you know, hopeless. So, I mean, to me, it's like there's this big focus now on adaptive reuse of buildings. And uh, some of my favorite projects at 
at Gensler, actually, that I just think are so terrific and really have captured people's imagination. I, I spoke to you about this one, Kira, where there was an adaptive reuse of a gas station to a community hub and a beer hall. And it's just, it took this very simple, mundane, banal corner of a neighborhood and transitioned it to a new use. Like as we look at transitioning away from gasoline into electric vehicles as well, like imagine the space that opens up on prime lots in cities and how those can become hubs for community. There's also uh, a couple of projects I've seen recently transforming coal-fired power plants in you know, their waterfront locations. They have fascinating, interesting um, existing buildings to be and structures to be transformed. So I think to me, I take a lot of inspiration from projects that um, rather than trying to invent something science fiction and new that says, how can we take what we have and bring new life to it, um, make it relevant to the community, create a life and activity around these these structures that supports, you know, a healthy local economy at the same time as bringing all of our smart thinking about reducing emissions and reducing, you know, embodied energy, reuse of buildings as part of that. So I think this whole focus on reuse, regeneration, re-transforming uh, what we have into what we would rather see in the future. So I think it's a it's a fabulous opportunity because you know we're being forced into making changes to the way we use energy and resources, and it's a great opportunity to to make it better. So I am very optimistic. And I, I think what I've noticed too is the young designers and students still in school, like they they find this very inspiring too. So, you know, it's about how we bring our skills into creating the type of uh, built environment we want to see. So I think it's that that transforming that is most inspiring to me. Hmm. That's beautiful. That's totally, I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I, that is inspiring. It's like the thing I look for to kind of keep me going. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great way to end. And, and also just an inspiring note to be reminded of all of these wonderful young people that are coming up and working on this stuff in, in new ways and with new energy. Um, so thank you. And thank you, Sandy, so much for being with us. This has been such a delight and a privilege to hear to hear your thinking and also just to hear your story. It's been really great. Well, thank you for the opportunity to chat and, and have a conversation about it. And uh, I love what you all are doing with the podcast. And also, thanks for the thoughts about reflecting and imagining the year to come. So happy to, to share some time with you this morning. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all, our listeners, for being with us. That is it for this week on the Design the Future podcast. Thanks for listening. Good luck with all of your end of year, beginning of year musings about where you want to take this new time um, in your life and in your career. So yeah, please uh, leave us a review on Apple. Don't forget, it really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.